This is episode two of the hashtag Love Oswaye podcast. Hello and welcome back to Love Oswaye podcast with episode two. Thank you all so much for listening to the first episode. Over the last month, I've received a lot of positive feedback and it seems like you all enjoyed what you heard, which makes me very pleased. On this episode, I will be speaking to Vicky Wakefield about her third novel, In Between Days, which came out on the 23rd of September from Text Publishing and is in stores for you to buy now. But before we get to Vicky, I have three 2015 debut Australian YA authors on the podcast to introduce their debut novels and to discuss what's it like being a debut author in Australia, especially at a time when the Love Oswaya campaign is getting seen and heard. So I welcome Fleur Ferris, the author of Risk, which came out in July from Random House Australia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's okay. Next up, we have Trinity Doyle, the author of Pieces of Sky, which came out in June from Alan and Unwin. Welcome to the podcast, Trin. Hello, hello. Lastly, we have Chris Curry, whose debut novel, Clancy of the Undertow, is coming out in December from Text Publishing. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. Why don't we first briefly describe each of your books? So why don't you go first, just for readers who haven't yet been introduced to Risk or Piece of Sky, and then Chris with your upcoming publication. Okay, Risk is about two 15-year-old girls who go online and meet a guy. They're best friends. One of the girls gets the date on Friday night and she heads off to meet up with the guy and doesn't come back when she said she was going to. So a friend has covered for her and it sort of puts her into a place where she's not quite comfortable to be. She's not sure what to do. And that's where the story kicks off. Contemporary, set in Melbourne, and that's about it without making spoilers. Yeah, and what about you, Trin? Uh, Pieces of Sky is about uh, Lucy Taylor, who is a 15-year-old girl, and she's a competitive swimmer. And uh, it's about when her older brother drowns and she suddenly develops a fear of the water, and so she can't do the thing that she loves anymore. So it's about who you are when you when you can't do the thing that defines you and just that loss and dealing with the new shape of the family. Thanks, Trin. And now your turn, Chris. main character is uh, Clancy obviously, from the title, who's a 15-year-old girl growing up in a, a fictional Queensland town. The sort of the setup to the story is her, her dad works for a road crew and, and he may or may not have been involved in a, a serious traffic accident that kills two other teenagers. Um, that's the sort of setup to the story and it's about how the, the town deals with Clancy and her family, but at the same time, that over a, a summer and she's um, growing up and figuring out who she is and there's jokes as well. So Fleur, we've seen Risk on the Penguin Team Australia top 10 best sales chart for the six weeks yeah no it was eight weeks eight weeks now eight weeks well it's out now yeah but it was eight weeks from when it first went on so that was very exciting so with that you've had a visual sense of how well the book was being received so how does that make you feel when you see a debut australian novel your novel uh, on that chart alongside internationally best-selling authors that are consistently on that chart day in and day out it was amazing to see that and very unexpected you don't know how you book's going to be received when it comes out but to see it go on a chart like that alongside those books was just amazing every week I thought oh this will be the last week for sure and then the next week I'd be tagged into the into Penguin Teen's tweet showing the chart again and it would be like yay it's still there but um but it has gone out now so eight weeks was good though yeah for me to see a young adult Australian debut book on that list it's amazing yeah yeah it was amazing and now I throw it out to Trinity and Chris so pre-publication have you worried or do you worry that your novel won't be received as well as you thought it would I don't I don't really know yet so the the thing about my book that I guess I'm most not worried about but interested to see how it will be how it will come across is the the essential character as I said is a 15 year old girl but she's also a gay character and I'm fully prepared for questions of why a 30 something year old straight white man is writing about a 15 year old gay girl yeah. character so that I think that will be interesting to see how that's uh, how that's received but apart apart from that it's going to be a different a different process for post publication I've got one book that came out a couple of years ago which is an adult book but this will be a very different experience as far as where it's publicized and how I publicize it and uh, where the reviews will appear and that sort of thing so it's going to be quite interesting yeah definitely and Trin? well I figured that everyone I kind of knew would buy it and then I just thought maybe I'd be on my own after that <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was I was a jangly mess of nerves leading up to the to the launch and it hasn't really eased off since then. So. <laughs> 
it's been yeah, it's been I don't know. It's a weird it's weird putting something into the world. You know, I was kind of prepared in one way for the, the that departure from my story, like giving giving that. But in another way, it really um, blindsided me just in that sudden just feeling of exposure and people are talking about me. I don't have control. I'm a very controlly mm. person. Like I don't have control of conversation. <laughs> people are now freewheeling with my book. So that, that was um, strange and I, I'm probably still getting used to that. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. That sort of hit me right before it came out. I didn't put much thought to it because I was so busy with the edits mm. and everything. And then suddenly it was a week or so before it was ready to hit the shops. And I thought, oh, my goodness, someone can buy my book and read it <laughs> if they want to. Yeah. Then it was just terrifying from then on. And it, and it sort of doesn't go away. It, but anyway, it, you just None have to buy it. And... Oh, Chris, Chris, it's amazing. <laughs> It's a great experience. The first time you see your book in a store, but just it is also terrifying. So have the two of you like bought multiple copies of your books to sell out a store? Well, I didn't actually receive my copies. They got lost. Oh. Um, I, got I live a long way. Did you? I live a long way from my from my store, so I did have to rush out and buy some copies as gifts because I wanted to thank people with a copy of the book. So I did do that, but um, that was because I didn't receive my publishing copies, my my nice little present. Yeah, no. What about you, Trin? Yeah, well, they sent me. I I wasn't even expecting it. I've got a box of like twenty books. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've sold one. It's going well. <laughs> <laughs> so have your careers outside of writing helped you in any way in your writing? So Fleur, with your living, I guess, rurally, um, and then your paramedic and police work, Chris as a bookseller and Trin as a blogger, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> or a graphic designer. Or whatever else you've been doing. <laughs> Terrible blogger. <laughs> I love that. It's like Trinity. She came as a blogger. Like the worst blogger ever. I'm so Sorry. existent. So, designer. So who yeah. wants to go first? Go, Chris. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's sort of alphabetical, isn't it? Just yeah. So uh, I guess I have a bit of a a experience into the what does happen to books after they get published and a bit of behind the scenes stuff. So I work at Avid Reader Bookshop in Brisbane, an independent bookshop. Uh, I had been for quite a while the uh, the stock buyer there, so I would literally be buying books in. And I had the experience when my first book came out, The Ottoman Motel, um, the experience of actually sitting down with a publishing rep and putting an order in for my book, which was very surreal, uh, and then seeing it come in and unpack it and that sort of thing. So it, it, it's good in some way that I, I get a bit of the, the background knowledge is how things work but also i i can see how quickly books disappear from from the shelf so it's a, a, a two two sides to the to the coin i guess and trin oh well <laughs> i don't know how much being a designer really paired into the writing other than my love of art definitely in the book yeah but it definitely helped out with the cover <laughs> that was nice it's, got, a, it's a beautiful cover got, thank you i got to throw right. ideas around with my publisher and have a have a lot of say in the design and and end up getting credited as, as part of the book cover design as well so that definitely helped yeah and for her um my background did come into my book a lot um i when i was in the police force of course i was doing a lot of statements and dealing with sex offenses and things like that and that does feature in the book and the police procedures i also did a lot of speaking in my emergency service roles a lot of speaking in the in public in the public eye so that has certainly helped me along after publication so yeah there's a lot of a lot of me in the book and and it's a lot of my background has helped me after it got went onto the shelves definitely in terms of the speaking aspect i guess in australia and it's something that fiona wood brought up about visiting the schools to promote her book but also australian ya titles because it's one of the best ways that teens can find about new books you've had experience with the speaking but trin and chris so were you prepared oh i wish i had Fleur's experience I probably done. I've done two school visits now, and one one thank God was a Q and A, so that went brilliantly. And the other mm-hmm. one was me just 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 talking at this group, and that was that was dreadful. So <laughs> it's it's a learning curve. Oh, I, this was one of the things that I definitely wanted to do. Like I loved going, and like I wished authors had come to my school and stuff, and it sounded so amazing. So it's just something like I want to be able to teach and impart and do all do all the stuff, but um. 
yeah, it's definitely harder, way harder than I thought it would be. Mm, and that's something I guess I'm, I have yet to look forward to. <laughs> well, 2016 is the year for that's you. That's right. <laughs> so what has been your favourite part of the publishing process so far? Fleur, maybe, or Chris? Or <laughs> <laughs> I, I have lots of favourites. Yeah, so many favourites. Seeing the book for the first time as a book was amazing. I really did enjoy going through the editorial. I learned a lot with working with publishers and my editor. And I loved being a part of that team for that book and, and that project, getting it out there. My launch was fantastic. I had so much support. I've got a lot of support from my local area. There was about 200 people that turned up for that. So I was terrified, but it was also a great experience. I've had great support from bookshops as well. So it's been a huge learning curve for me to step into something like this and to follow it through. But it's just been fantastic the whole way along, apart from the nerves. But I think that just goes with it. Yeah, that's good to hear. So I've only been through part of the process so far, but as I said, I'm, I've literally been doing edits this like this week and today I've been doing them as well. And that is a fantastic process for me dealing with it, like working with a professional editor when you get the... I'm not sure how you, how you guys, how you, you edit it has worked, but I, I get the printed out thing with the pencil marks all over it and it looks insanely hard when you first see it. And <laughs> it's the, you know, the you know, that first chapter that you've looked at 7,000 times and you think is pretty much perfect. And then you get the, you get the editor's marks back and there's 10 things to change in every sentence. And it, you think it's going to be a bit, a bit daunting, but it's, it's a really interesting process. And the best thing for me is to, the further on I go with it, the more I start to be able to edit my own writing as I go. And, and I'm doing that thing. I've been doing that thing today where you printed it out and I'm reading it out aloud to, you know, find the rhythm and that sort of thing. So, and I've, I've certainly, it certainly improved the story having that, having looked at that original, original edit as well. So it's a, I find it really, a really interesting process. My favorite was when my agent rang me up and said, you have an offer. And then I just screamed and <laughs> jumped in my lounge room. And then I rang my mum. I tried to ring my husband first, but he wasn't answering. And then I rang my mum and she thought there was a spider in the house. <laughs> <laughs> say, no, no, my book's going to be a book. Oh, my gosh. That that was with the best moment. Probably top five in my life, I'd say. That was amazing. But then, yes, to copy the other guys, the editorial was so was so good. I felt like I've, ri- I've written this book probably at least seven times. And each time I thought, oh, this is it. This is, I've got the story now. This is the end. There's obviously nothing else I can do. And then to have other people come in and say, oh, have you thought about this and thought about that? And, and just asking questions and asking the right questions as well. Um, and then just seeing the whole thing open up again, going, oh, everything's possible. Like that, that was really cool. And then just having people almost be obsessed with your work as much as you are is, is insanely cool. It's really just affirming that you've got something worthwhile because it's kind of you write alone in your cave and you might send it to a few people, but I don't really know if this is any good sometimes. Just I like it, but will other people like it? I don't know. And so to have these people who are so good at their jobs and they just know what they're doing and to have that, them have that faith in you is, is really unbelievable. Nice. So so how, how has the experience been with your respected publishers Floyd, do you want to start again yeah well mine's been fantastic they've been they've involved me the whole way I didn't have as much say in the cover as Trinity but I didn't have as much to give for that either so my skills aren't in that area and marketing is certainly not my area but they I've certainly been a part of it the whole way and I really enjoy working with my editor and my publisher they're fantastic and it's just been a great experience. And I look forward to doing it all over again for the next book, which is coming out next year. Chris, with text. Again, only good things to say. Text are a really cool publisher. And especially because I came to them with this YA manuscript when I was meant to be writing, I think I promised them two other adult, adult books that didn't invent your own. <laughs> and, and got to take it to my, to my uh, editor and she said, okay, yeah, have a look at it. And uh, luckily she liked it. But no, yeah, yeah, my editor's fantastic and the whole the whole team there are very very welcoming. And, and if I am ever in Melbourne, they always uh, stop what they're doing and have a cup of tea or a beer with me, which is which is incredible and make you feel like a, like a special author <laughs> for, for a few minutes. That sounds like the perfect author life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Trinity with Alan and Unwin. I can't say enough good things about 
Alan Unwin. They're just Anna is amazing. I got I read this advice just before I signed with them, which was don't go with a publisher. This is if you've got choice, I guess. But don't go with a publisher <laughs> who um, you know or just pub, just because okay, publish your favorite authors. But go with a publisher who makes you feel like their favorite author, and that's just exactly what they did right from the beginning with me. And I've never like felt. I guess in in the dark or on my own with them, they've just been just like mm. like going into a family. They've been amazing. Love them mm. to bits. Did you want to add anything, Chris? Oh no, I, I think no. That, I thought I, you were going to say something. We're all. It's so hard when you can't see anyone's expression. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I've, been, I've been waiting here to slag off my publisher. Just been. <laughs> but no. Chris, can I ask Chris a question? Yeah. Well, is your first publisher is that text as well? Oh, sorry, your, for your adult book. Yeah, that was that was text as well. So I had the same okay. Mandy Brett, the same editor for both. Yeah. Yeah. Which, oh, which I was very very lucky, very lucky to have. She doesn't always do YA stuff and you, you, you feel you feel funny when you're talking to her and she's going okay well I'll do I'll do your edits next week I'm just finishing off Magda Javansky's book at the moment I'm like okay <laughs> no, no hurry <laughs> that's cool at this time in your writing careers what is hashtag love YA to you Trinity community I think I think it's really cool to be able to debut at a time when this movement's getting together like just having having a mobilized group suddenly has opened up a, a world of people that maybe it, took, it would have taken me years to even be in contact with and suddenly everyone's just gotten together in this great big mass. <laughs> it's like, hello, we all love Osway A. Great. So I just, I love the, the community aspect of it and just champ, being able to champion each other's books and just, just talk the, the ears of people about books that I just loved absolute bits. So, yeah. I have to agree. And now, Chris, you've found yourself in the YA world. Yeah, uh, I think I've timed it. I think I've timed it well, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I've been consciously not reading YA or you know Aussie YA or any YA while I've been writing the book. Um, but by this time next week, I'll be I'll be getting stuck into some. It's funny. We uh, the bookshop I'm in has recently opened up a children's and YA bookshop separate as a separate business next door. So I am completely out of touch with with children's and YA, YA books, whereas before, you know, three or four months ago, I would have been able to tell you what's what's going on. So I have to, have to uh, re-educate myself to some point, to some extent, but the hashtag's there and I have, We're you know. We're here to help, Chris. We're yeah, I've got, I've got Trinity and Fleur's book to read, which I will obviously do next. <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, but it, it's, it, yeah, it already feels like a really welcoming community, which is which is wonderful, especially for a, yeah, first-time YA author. And what about you, Fleur? I love the love for Oz YA. It's a, it's a huge support. I feel really supported by people I don't even know and haven't met mm. before just by being included in that and seeing your book with all those amazing books on the posters is just such a big confidence boost and just makes makes you feel a real part of of the community even though it's our my first book and and there it is on with people who have won awards and have had lots of books out and have done mm. a lot of hard yards to you know find their place in the market and have a real following it sort of brings everybody together like trinity said as a community and for a first time author to come into something like that i think is just amazing i just feel really fortunate that i've been published and then suddenly this is there and there's people putting so much time their own time to it mm. which just shows the passion behind it and it's just going to move everything forward together and it can only be a positive outcome for everybody involved it's mm. it's amazing what people are doing and talented people there's so many people bringing different skills into this i just see today that there's been a committee formed it's make, made up of authors and people working in the industry and it's just fantastic to have that and that support and information coming through yeah definitely and so do you think this campaign in the long term will have an impact on your career as a novelist or a ya novelist in australia i think it will because it creates more exposure so it can only enhance your career with more exposure the books around at the moment are are fantastic the ones i've read australian young adult fiction have just been top quality i read so many books from all over the world and the australian books are up there with the best and to be a part of that it it can only be a good thing and I, i truly do believe that it will enhance those involved and the the writers current at the moment that it will enhance their career yeah definitely like it would be i i want to get see um aussie teenagers get as excited about us bunch as they do as 
that Cassie Claire coming over or somebody because I think I think we're just oh, as yeah. good. <laughs> so I'm hoping like with this campaign that just getting the awareness up and getting out there and people just latching on to how good our own literature <laughs> is and, and starting to celebrate it is just mm. going to be an amazing thing. I saw a Dimmick shop that had a whole big stand of Oz YA books. Mm. Um, so it's filtering through and that's filtering right down to, to where they're selling the books. And yeah. that just shows what impact it's already having and it's very new. And it's school libraries, I've seen photos of school libraries that have huge displays, love OzYA displays. Mm. That's just amazing because that's where all the kids walk in and see that and they see those books out there. Yeah. It can yeah. only filter through as a good thing. Mm. And from the from a book, bookseller's point of view as well, it, it definitely has, it has you know, become a, a bit of a calling card now and it almost, you know, as, as bad as it is to use that word, it, it legitimises Australian writing. There's those fantastic Love Oz YA posters that have been going around which sort of say if you love John Green you'll love this author if you love this you'll love this this Australian author and I think it's it's fantastic and I know where wild things are which is the children's bookshop um, it's associated with Avid Reader. Um, we have a whole Love Oz YA shelf and have started, uh, you know, a, a book club that's looking at looking at unreleased uh, Australian YA books, getting people to read them before they come out, building the bars, that sort of thing. That's awesome. Because it's just that's that's the generation who are reading the most and are, and are most engaged with, with the books. Yeah, it's fantastic. So when Clancy comes out, are you going to put your book, like, front and center? Yeah, it'll be nothing. We'll take everyone else's books off the shelf. <laughs> Just, just like five yeah, stacks. Sorry, of fancy, sorry, yeah. levels, yeah. Get to do <laughs> No, no, it'll be, it'll be on the shelf among all the other wonderful books, and I I, I actually can't I can't recommend my own book. I just I find it too awkward uh, to do so. Oh, I've, I've just started a new career as a bookseller, guys. Yeah. <laughs> of, like, Tell us about as of, it. Like last week, I got a job at my local bookshop. Oh, oh fantastic! Well done, congratulations. Um, and on my sh- on my first shift, I sold my own book, and that was strange. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. That's hey? really cool. Did you sign it for them? I did, but it was only because the owner was standing next to me, going, "This is Trinity, our new employee." Mm-hmm. And she like is a is a published author and then went like big elbow go and show them what you wrote <laughs> <laughs> oh. i don't know how many i will actually sell but you know that helped so yeah very awkward Fantastic. Very <laughs> well that's great that you sold your first um the first copy of your book in the first week of your job <laughs> You could have gone out for lunch then and just said, my job is done. (laughs) (laughs) What is it about young adult fiction that appeals to you? That appeals to me? Yeah. Um, I don't know, everything. I love that it's a a time of immense change. There's so much definition of who you are now and who you're going to be and, and do I like this and do I like that. That's all up for grabs. And then there's just these giant emotions that you get to dive into, which is what I guess I loved about being a teenager. I really got into the emotional thing. And it's just, you don't just like somebody, you're in love and everything's forever. And if I don't do this thing, then this is the end of the complete world. And I love that drama. (laughs) And then I just, I love, I love that sweet romance, the new love, first love. It's, it's so beautiful. And then, yeah. I love it all. It's so good. Such a good genre. Category. Sorry, it's not a genre. <laughs> yeah, category. <laughs> I love that there's so many first things in mm. in that age group, your experiences, and you, you're going from you're still living with parents and or guardians, but you're also branching out and doing everything as much as you can on your own and you're wanting to and your peers are so important. So you've got this strange mix of someone being overprotective or not wanting you to do things. So there's there's always this sort of conflict swinging back and forth that just just in your everyday life, of you've still got to check in and you've still got to do this, yeah. but you're quite capable of doing whatever it is that you're wanting to do. So I just think it's... It's an interesting time of, of someone's life and it's a time that you never forget how you felt in those situations and those first experiences are so strong. Mm. Um, your emotions are so strong at that time that you, you just never forget them and they're so important to you right throughout your life. There's a lot to tap into, I find. Mm. I think you guys have covered most of it, but it's yeah, <laughs> it's that universality of it. Everyone has been or is a teenager who's reading my yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think no matter who you are, there, there's something that that you can you can identify with when you're reading a, a YA book or a, you know a coming of age book, which have always been my favourite stories to read because uh, there's yes, like I said, there's always something you can identify with, and and I think that that certainly helps you with the reading process and and engages you more than you would 
reading something else. I think there's still, you come into adult life, this is like why you would read YA as, as an adult, and there's still things you look for from your teenage years, like for validation, like that. Mm-hmm. Was, yeah, that yeah. was I alone in this, you know, or was anybody like this? And that's so what you get from books. And then reading that and going, oh, I wasn't so insane. That's mm. really, it's just a beautiful thing. Good, good. I think we'll, we'll leave it there. So thank you, the three of you, for joining me on such short notice. No worries. Thank you, Pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Nice to chat. All right. To remind you, that was Fleur Ferris, the author of Risk, and Trinity Doyle, the author of Pieces of Sky, whose books are both in stores now. And then we also had Chris Curry, whose novel, Fancy of the Undertow, is available in December. Before I play my conversation with Vicky Wakefield, I thought I'd take a little related detour and read a few pages from Tim Winton's new book, Island Home, which is a landscape memoir out now from Penguin about how Australia has shaped us as a people and how the landscape sets us apart without us really realising from other people overseas. It's also how the environment that Tim Winton grew up in has influenced his writing. Now, Tim Winton is, can be called a young adult author because of his Lockie Leonard series of books, which were adapted into a TV series, which was a more of a tween show. So this is from page 133. Teachers of creative writing used to urge their students to write about what they know. Perhaps they still do. But when you're 18 or 19 and keenly aware of how thin your experience really is, it's hard to put a directive like that into action. The truth is, a family and a hometown will afford you material to last a lifetime. But when you're a youth, neither seems important enough to address. It's as if only distant places and other families are worth writing about. Even young New Yorkers and Londoners must feel this. For somebody writing from the wrong side of the wrong continent in the wrong hemisphere, the feeling is acute. When you're starting out, it takes nerve to write about home and to do it in a language that's unapologetically local. Some voice in your head is telling you to moderate the demotic and the specific, to accommodate the cosmopolitan reader. For writers at the margin, there will always be an imperial pressure to relinquish particularity and conform to something more familiar. And what is most familiar to the world of publishing is an urban and largely denatured life. Whether they acknowledge it or not, Many editors like to see their own lives reflected. Readers in New York and London often prefer a friction-free reading experience. So when you stubbornly write about regional lives and local vernacular, you test the cosmopolitan reader's patience. These were lessons I had to learn at home before I began to be published abroad. As Flannery O'Connor and Alice Munro have shown, it's one thing to teach yourself to write and another to train your editors to read you. Both these regional writers, each stubbornly invested in particularity, educated their publishers and their readers with sheer persistence by holding their nerve. I don't know if in the end I have my nerve as a writer or just painted myself into a corner, but I persisted with place as a starting point for all my stories. For me, a story proceeded from the logic of an ecosystem. When I began a piece, I never knew where I was headed, but I followed the contours of the country my characters were in and found my way to the nub of things. And over time, I grew more passionate and emboldened about using the vernacular language of the people I knew best. In a way, I wanted to draw a reader into a fictional setting that was unmistakably distinct. I began to write about Albany and the people and places along the south coast. This was as much a matter of making do with what I knew as it was an ongoing act of homage to somewhere I loved. So those were a few passages I found in Island Home that spoke true about and seemed associated to Love Oz Way A. Especially at that moment when Tim Winton mentions local readers becoming accustomed and influenced by the vernacular and types of stories in American and British literature. In that sense, their cultural identity as Australians becomes skewed as those international stories become the norm. I quite liked when Winton says, the truth is, a family and a hometown will afford you material to last a lifetime. But when you're a youth, neither seems important enough to address. As writers and readers, librarians and teachers, I think it's vital that we let young writers know that Australian stories are needed, that it's all well and good to write about distant places and other people, but but don't forgo truth and honesty and your own unique way of speaking to cater to the wants of an international, more commercial marketplace. Sure, write fantasy and science fiction, but don't forget about the places and the people you physically know that made you, you. I think the timing was impeccable that Tim Winton's Island Home came out the exact same week that Vicky Wakefield's In Between Days was. Because Vicky, in her writing and her stories, she expresses a place, a setting that is quintessentially Australian. It's very descriptive, it's very believable and real. And Vicky's characters are Australian. Her stories are Australian. The speech is Australian. And it's just great that I get to go from Tim Winton to Vicky Wakefield. 
But Vicky's first young adult novel, All I Ever Wanted, won the 2012 Adelaide Festival Literary Award for Young Adult Fiction, as did her second novel, Friday Brown. Friday Brown was also an honour book at the CBC Awards in 2013. It was also shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Awards. Vicky lives in the Adelaide foothills with her family. Uh, Thank you so much for um, giving your time to the podcast, Vicky. Thanks for having me, Brayden. Um, and don't tell anyone I'm wearing my pajamas. <laughs> That's okay. I'm doing the same. So you got in between days out. Would you be um, okay to read a short passage from in between days, um, introducing the character of Jack, which um, readers will be introduced to, or even Mobius, the town. Sure. I've skipped straight to chapter three, which it gives a pretty hefty description of Mobius, which is the small town where Jack lives. So this is from chapter three. There were probably a million main streets in a million small towns all over the world and until I got past the age of 10 I believed they were just like ours. Our main street was the stubborn trunk of a dying tree. New shops sprang up to replace those that had closed but they were feeble shoots feeding off cheap rent and novelty. They withered fast, sometimes so fast they recycled the same clothes sign over and over. The pub thrived and the TAB, the newsagent, bakery and chemist. That about summed up the locals. Hard-drinking, pie-loving, pill-popping people who were born in Mobius and would most likely die there too, but not before they'd read that day's newspaper and placed a bet. Since the gold rush boom in the mid-1800s, the only sure thing to draw tourists was the suicide forest, and only then in the year of a fresh death. Hardly anything was open before 10 o'clock. People drove in by accident and left on purpose. At the four corners of Mobius, like goalposts, stood Prior Ridge and Mount Moon, Mosley's Dam and the abandoned drive-in. With only one town cop who didn't live in Mobius and who knocked off early so he could be home in time for dinner, it wasn't hard to dodge the law if we were up to no good. I always got to work an hour before opening. Bent Bowl Spoon had a fruity root overripe smell that triggered old memories. Me riding Ma's hip, Trudy stealing tampons, bribing the older kids to buy me cigarettes. The Burt Area School picked up just outside. Originally, back when it was the general store and Mr Broadbed's parents were running it, the neon sign had read, Broadbed's Country Bowl and Spoon. Over the years, the letters had stopped working and so had Mr Broadbent's mind. Albie added a single stuttering petrol bowser that pumped more air than fuel and locals started calling it Bent Bowl Spoon. By the age of four, I knew there were exactly 38 black vinyl diamonds between the entrance of Bent Bowl Spoon and the front counter. By the time I was nine, I'd counted 416 in the whole store. I'd heard of people who counted obsessively, but it wasn't like that for me. I just liked to know that some things didn't change. So that's from chapter three. I love hearing you all read from your novels. <laughs> it's such <laughs> a privilege. If, if, if I was ever in a position to hire somebody to read for me, I would do it. <laughs> and I know other people love reading. That's the easiest thing. But no, for me reading, I think, oh, I know these words. I know them intimately, but I still stumble over them. I put too many S's together. And... Yeah, that's okay. What I love most about your novels is the strong rural vibe that you instill in the atmosphere of of the worlds that you create and for your characters. Very visual and it's very visceral and descriptive and you make the setting almost believable and real and it's pretty much another character in itself. Was there any reason for creating a fictional town or two uh, for Jack's story? I don't think I deliberately choose to write rural settings. It's more a combination of writing what I know and what scares me along with needing to contain my setting somehow. So all I ever wanted was set in an outer suburb, which is similar to where I grew up. Friday Brown was uh, split between the city and the outback. I needed that contrast to challenge Friday's character. In Between Days is set in a rural mountain town, um, which was heavily influenced by Hall's Gap in the Grampians. Yeah. When we camped there, it always strikes me as having a gothic vibe, almost picnic at Hanging Rock. And I don't know, just all of my settings have boundaries as opposed to writing a setting that's vague or anonymous uh, or spills over into other settings like cities. Because my characters are very much shaped by setting, I tend to explore landscapes that have distinct personalities or places that have affected me personally. Like sometimes I'll just, I'll go to a new place and it'll seem familiar, but at the same time I have this strange feeling of otherness and that really fascinates me. I think I'm still suffering from a particular mockingbird hangover. 
you know how it's such a strong sense of place. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And and all the characters have such vivid personalities and I love how nothing is as it seems, that childhood thing where you you see one thing and, and it becomes something else. So I think it's not so much that I'll ever keep writing rural towns, but, yes, I think my work's distinctly Australian. And where did the name Mobius come from? For a little while there I was watching experiments with my kids. We made Mobius strips. I don't know if you remember making them in, in school. Well, you take a strip of paper, you tear it into a strip and you twist it and join it and it becomes like an infinity-type symbol. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's no end to it. It's just a loop. It just keeps going around and around. And, and I always thought, I just like the sound of the word Mobius. And then, of course, I built the town around that idea of, of this endless loop of community and people and everyone affecting one another. Yeah, because it has like this, I guess, with the ears on the end, a very mythological Latin sound. It does. And I think <laughs> this is going to sound silly, but many years ago, someone told me that L words and M words, people are more fascinated by that sound than they are by any other letter. So it has more of a... Um, so consequently, I'd name my daughter Mia and um, it goes from there. I like L words and M words. So the Mobius thing, sometimes I, I just need an anchor, something to me down and and make me think about what it is about a certain place or a person or a character so names are one thing really important to me nice tim winton has a landscape memoir out now from penguin um titled island home and like it's about the australian landscape and how it has shaped tim and his writing in a recent city morning herald article he says and i quote it's meaning australia's earthly character shapes our own and sets us apart as a people do you agree with that statement? I do. I don't think you can live in Australia for any length of time and not have it become a part of who you are. I can't imagine how it must feel to leave or to be displaced from your country. I'm not sure I would be a kind, the kind of person who could adapt and thrive. So I have a lot of res- respect for people who can do that. But this, I mean, this country is so big and I haven't explored enough of it. The Australia Tim Winton talks about in his mem- memoir is likely to be very different from my kind of Australia. And that's what's wonderful about Australian writing is it has its own flavour, but it's also extremely diverse and there's a lot going on in it. Yeah. What is it about Australia for you? I guess you mentioned it before, but what is it about Australia that captures your imagination, influences you to write stories set in that environment? Probably a lot of coming and of age things where uh, Friday Brown, the, that, that outback, those outback scenes are heavily influenced by something I did when I was quite young, when I was 15. Some older friends with cars had decided they were going to go camping in a ghost town called Beltana. And at 15, I figured I was old enough to go, but my parents thought otherwise. I decided I would go anyway, so I just went. I packed and I went. I took a few cans of baked beans, a sleeping bag and a pillow and figured that would about do it. What I didn't realise was the desert drops to you know minus temperatures at night and gets to above 40 in the day was totally unprepared for the people that I was with being older and it was just so alien and I felt I've probably never been more terrified in my life and at the same time I had to pull up my bootstraps and get through this three days knowing that when I got back I would be grounded for life being hungry and cold and scared and but also at the same time I fell in love with the landscape too I realized that Sometimes what scares you is what is most beautiful, I guess. Yeah. And still, often now, we go camping with my kids and I'll, I'll send them off somewhere because I just want to sit and soak it all up. To me, the outback is just stunning and amazing, but it still scares me. And Hall's Gap is another place, you know. I go there and I think, I'm just struck by it. It makes me concentrate. It makes me think about things and, and notice small details and people. And, you know, it's such, it is contained because it's surrounded on all sides you know you just you drive into this place and it's like there's nothing around it there's just these people and this place and there's a certain mythology to it that I find really fascinating places to me again when I'm writing I like to, I like to think of the place that I'm writing about as separate from everything else at the time that I'm writing about it Mobius is really was easy to do that actually probably this town came to me more fully formed than than my own suburb when I was writing about that in All I Ever Wanted. You know, it was it was easier. Yeah. Probably because when I'm when I was writing All I Ever Wanted, which is semi autobiographical, I you know I, I had a much more. I felt like I needed to get things right. 
Whereas with Mobius, it was like just in being in a playground, I could do whatever, whatever I wanted with it. And so that was kind of freeing. Doesn't mean it was any easier, but it was just, it was certainly a lot more fun. Yeah. So all I ever wanted, and uh, as you were mentioning, and Friday Brown and now In Between Days, they all involve a distrust of adults and authority and a theme of leaving home. I guess that leaving home is for Friday and for Jack. They're, they're in a sort of in-between state between two places, as you were mentioning. Do these come through as you're writing your stories and the characters, or does that come from somewhere a bit more personal? Yes, it's personal. It's always personal when I'm writing. I'm not someone who can really be distant from themselves when I'm telling a story, but it's not usually until I've finished a book that I can identify my own themes. They're not really deliberate it's more that they've evolved from character and from from exploring ideas my themes I guess come from a fundamental belief but it's really hard to see that until you've finished writing the more I write the more I figure out about myself and some of it is not flattering I've discovered a lot about my own character through writing and some things really make me squirm and sometimes I've even apologized for things I've done a long time ago so yeah I'd, I'd say it's always personal there's always something I'd I've not yet written anything that is not deeply connected to me and my beliefs in some way. So Jack is very much another extension of who I am and what I believe and some horrible things I did and, you know, and conflict between adults and teens is pretty universal. I think to me it's normal. So when I do write, it's it's always at the back of my mind that I need to explore it in terms of, like, as an extension of myself, I guess. That sounds really wanky, doesn't it? <laughs> no, it, it sounds completely fine. I find you're one of those writers and among many Australian writers that write from a very personal space and they, they want to express certain things, which I guess a lot of commercial fiction doesn't. And um, I guess Lovers Way, in a sense, is trying to push those really authentic and truthful Australian stories to um, the surface. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I'm quite proud of this book in one sense because someone said to me once they'd read an early draft, was, oh, you've you've written a love triangle. And I'm like, oh, I have. For, for in between days. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, I have. I've written a love triangle. And I'm really quite scathing of that trope in my fiction. When, it, when it's not handled well, when everyone's beautiful and it's just a matter of one beautiful person choosing between two other beautiful people that frustrates me I guess but I didn't another thing you know I didn't notice until after I'd finished writing I I have I've written a love triangle I've done it the Wakefield way which involves (laughs) people you know (laughs) doing horrible things but but it's true um yeah a lot of a lot I just try to put a twist on everything I guess that but it has to be feel true to me as I'm writing it this book's been rewritten so many times because I headed off in the wrong directions and had to backtrack but that's that's the thing you don't know your characters until you've made them put them through some hoops and tried to figure out who they are as well yeah how different was the previous drafts to the current one i think it still had the same vibe to it which is one thing that always sort of sticks but they did different things i think i had some rather i didn't explore the sister this is a sister book yeah it really is about sisters much as it is about love and um, and there are boys involved and, you know, a lot of other people, it is very much a sister book and, and in, as an extension to that, it's a mother and daughter book as well. That was something I really had to strengthen, I think. I had to choose. I think I was fence-sitting for a while there. It just had a little bit too much of everything. Right. Um, and I always found Trudy, the older sister, quite fascinating. Not having a sister myself, I could just make her be whatever I wanted. And I got her really wrong quite a few times, so, uh, but she came together in the end. It, it just took a while. Coming back to the, the supposedly written love triangle, when I read it, I didn't see anything of it because Jeremiah and Luke, they're completely different personalities. And in the end, there's, it's kind of, I don't know, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but yeah. there's, there's no kind of conclusion to a relationship, which Jack is still... In that limbo phase between those two? Yeah. Is that right? I think I think whole life is just moving from one limbo to another. I'm not not sure it ends when you turn 18 or when you 
past some of those rites of passage, like getting a job and moving out of home, I don't think it ends. I think you just move to another limbo. You know, and that's that's one of the major themes of the novel is that, you know, you're waiting for things to happen, but while you're waiting, life is happening and it's exhilarating. But we forget about that and quite often we're always looking for the next thing instead of enjoying the moment. So, yeah, Jack and Jeremiah and Luke, all very, very different people and Jack is kind of this hub in the middle. I don't know if anyone might remember seeing a film back from the early 90s called Threesome and it was a love story. It was done beautifully and um, everyone was in love with the wrong person and it was explored their relationships and that was one movie that I watched several times while I was writing this just to see how in, I don't know, popular fiction sometimes we look for the easy answer and I think the best movies and the best books don't look for that. kind of had to skew away from what I thought readers might want from this and just go with what I thought Jack wanted. Yep. And that was kind of hard because then I ended up, in a pl- of course, back in that place where, no, there are no real answers and you'll just have to see how things end. Yeah, I think you ended it quite beautifully, to be honest. Thank you. Yeah. So Jack is a very inquisitive teenager. She's always looking for answers to the problems in her, in her relationships, as we just discussed, and or in the world around her in, in that Mobius sense. Um, so that she can move on. And is that a trait that you identify with? Being being curious. Yeah, and, being curious, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I did explore moving on in In Between Days, much more so than my other books. And the idea that some teens are more questioning, but less accepting of the way things are. Something that we do as we get older, we, lo- we ask less questions, we fall into line and follow the status quo. So, I mean, Mim and, Mim and Friday from my other two books, I think they're realists, but Jack is, a, she's an idealist. She's got really romantic notions of life and she's probably a lot more like me in that respect. I had really high hopes and expectations for my life when I left home for the first time and I handled disappointment really, really badly and I was disappointed a lot. And I rebelled against everything, including my parents and any forms of authority. So, yes, that, that comes through in my books. In this book in particular, I wanted to express that you can be a shitty person and who does shitty things, but, but that's not the end of the story unless that's how you let it end. Yeah. So, I mean, I just I have a, a teenage daughter, just turned teenage daughter. I'd like to say that I'll be less judgmental of her than I am of myself, but it's parental nature to try to protect your kids and head them off at the past or they make the same mistakes. And sometimes we forget that coming of age is all about figuring it out for yourself. That's what it's about. So young adults used to head out into the wilderness and hopefully make it back with nothing but a saber-toothed tiger bites and twigs in their hair. But now <laughs> I think um, kids grow up less able to navigate the risks associated with having choices. By the time I was 17, I'd given up on education and been in some pretty horrible situations. So, yeah, I'm, I'm an expert at moving on. <laughs> But I'm an optimist too, so I wish I could talk about my characters and my books without talking about myself, but I really can't separate the stories. Yeah, but even then with the moving on part, in In Between Days, you have a you have Mr. Broadbent, who is an old man, with and he's, he's lost his memory, but he's still trying to recollect those memories by going to the, the drive-in. So, yeah. so where did that kind of story strand come from? Oh, gosh. Um, Mr. Broadbent, I think I always have a... a a character who that I can just throw my whimsy at you know some people are so some of my characters are just so pragmatic there's some that I just want to be able to do make them other yeah and Mr. Silence was was the one in, in Friday Brown and um and Mr. Broadbent is is my other in in between days and I loved writing him because again he doesn't speak and then I didn't realise this until I'd finished. I've written another character that doesn't speak. <laughs> but, again, it's like puppetry, you know, making them do things and, and come alive on the page without actually giving them words to do that is, I find, fascinating. So I won't do it again. There, there, there won't be another mute character. But Mr Broadbent is symbolic of the whole idea that when we're young we just can't wait to grow up. Yeah. And he's at the end of his life and all he can see is looking back he's kind of the the tunnel is narrowing down but he's going back becoming almost becoming a child again Mm. and in that respect I guess I saw that he and Jack were almost parallel in their lives again which is bizarre when you're talking about a 17 year old girl 
and a 70-something-year-old man, what could they possibly have in common? But I think the way that she interacts with him is quite beautiful and it shows that she has a really, I don't know, I kind of, I was really proud of her with the way she dealt with him. It's a really gentle kind of loving care at the same time that she does really stupid things and, and almost treats him like she's he's a toy. Yeah, I'd agree, yeah. Yeah, so again, things that I have a lot of fun with and, and, and the relationship between Jack and Mr Broadbent was one of those things. I'm showing you my strings here, aren't I? Um, yeah, I have, I have a thing with heights and with strong mothers and with mute characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just it's honestly, the more, the more as I work, start working on a new book again, I'm almost eliminating those things. Mm. It's quite sad that I have to go through a checklist and go, Vicky, you've done the height thing, you really have to stop now. And, um, yeah, let's have this character be able to speak. It's, not something I've had to think about before. I wonder how people like, you know, people with 20 books under their belt feel mm. or whether you just keep throwing things in the pot and, and, and see what, you know, what comes out. I'm not sure yet. What I found in between days to be about are those times, as you mentioned many times throughout this interview, about those lives where we make choices. And I guess you, you've made choices in your, own, in your own life when you were younger. Sometimes we'd make a wrong turn, and but if we just wait it out and have hope or have faith, which are also two, two topics that you deal heavily with in, um, in between days, um, that we'll find our way back. It is about choices. I don't think there's ever one way. It's more like you just keep travelling until you realise you're on a road that doesn't go anywhere. I guess the travelling is a point and, and not the destination. So so in the beginning, Jack, she is, she's waiting and she's hoping and holding on to faith. I mean, she's in love with a guy. You know, she's waiting for him constantly. But nothing really happens until she does something. So it's all, it's all well and good to say that YA books need to be hopeful. But given the choice between a, you know, a truck full of hope and a cup full of human agency, I'd be there handing out cups because hope's only useful in those times when you can't do anything. So I made Jack wait in the beginning and she almost is, I mean, she's sitting there ready to be judged by the reader because she's, she's doing things that we know probably not good for us. I'm sure you've got that new book to continue on writing. So thank you so much for talking with me for the Lovers Way Air podcast. Thank you, Brayden. We've come to the end of this episode of the podcast. If you have any suggestions on what topics we should discuss or who you would like to hear on the podcast, send a tweet to at Lovers Way A on Twitter. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Happy reading.